Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch. With us today is my good friend, Gary Hayslip, a brilliant CISO, an author, and one of the best all-around human beings I know. Gary, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch. Hey, Alan. Thank you very much. Really happy to be here. First, a brief word about our sponsor. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged, that need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned, that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this show. All right. So, Gary, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? I know you well, but our listeners may not. A little bit about your background in cybersecurity. I came into cyber through the military. I always played with computers and stuff, joined the military. In the military, I had one job, but I fell in love with computers and I fell in love with hacking them and breaking them and networks. And it just kind of took off from there. For me, it was just, I had a couple of lucky breaks, some really good mentors, some people that uh, kind of turned me on to, you know, just networks in general and building and breaking things. And uh, I just became fascinated by it. So you grew up military. You basically had that sort of that tinkerer hacker mindset all along. It sounds like even before that, with the help of mentors, you got where you are today. And that ties me into another thing I love about you is that you yourself are a mentor and really generously give back to the community and work with a lot of folks. And the entire LinkedIn crowd was excited when I told them you were going to be my guest. So there were some great questions that came in. We'll start with one by Chris Hughes. He said, with the rapid pace of digital transformation... How does he maintain his technical depth and awareness to lead his teams while juggling the demands of the CISO role aligned with the business and executive focus? Basically, how are you a CISO leader in the face of all the other things CISOs have to do? What's your answer for that one, Gary? I have to admit, I mean, you spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time reading. I spend a lot of time speaking uh, with my peers, speaking with people like yourself, arguing with people like yourself, you know, because we all have different views about technologies and threats. I spend a lot of time researching. I mean, when I'm writing articles, which I'm in the process of doing right now, and I'm also writing a fourth book, you know, I spend a lot of time researching subjects because I don't know everything. And that's one of the things I love about cyber is you never will know everything. And then also in my job, I mean, you know, one of the parts of my job that I really love is that I get a chance to do cybersecurity due diligence on new deals, on new startups. And so I get a chance to see some really cutting edge technologies and see what people are doing. With technology, I'm always looking at stuff and thinking, how would that be used against me? How would I break into that? What could I do with that technology? And then for myself, there's always a continuous education piece. I'm always reading books. I just finished a um, a whole certificate track at Harvard. I'm in the middle of uh, working on my AWS certs. I'm in the middle of reading a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. I'm constantly reading stuff. And not only am I doing it, but I also, my staff, my team that I work with, I'm having them do things as well, because you need that well-roundedness to be able to operate in this field. That's brilliant. And that ties into Travis Howard's question, actually, because this idea that you're getting your team to do the same sorts of things you do, self-learning and perpetually going and growing. Travis says, are you concerned that you would end up training someone beyond their role and lose them as a result? I thought about this because 
I've, I've been asked this before. And I would say no. I would say, you know, I would be more concerned about having underachievers than overperformers. I'm basically realistic. I know the people on my team, you know, I have the honor of mentoring and leading them for a specific point in time as they move down their career path. I basically try to mentor them in both their soft skills and in their technical skills, you know, that I need them to learn in their current job. But I also try to prepare them for the future because I know I'm not going to have them the whole time. And I want to make sure that they're prepared for wherever they're going to go. I know people will eventually leave me and I'm okay with that. I mean, I've had people in my teams that have worked with me from previous employers who have followed me, you know, to other jobs. And my thing is I'm really proud that I've had people that are now stepping into their first director positions, their first CISO positions, you know, and it means a lot to me that I help them and their career path to get there, you know? Mm. And so, no, I don't have a problem with that at all. That's fantastic, man. I've got a similar philosophy on this one, and I just feel the need to share this one story. Years ago, I was a senior director managing a product security team, and I had a fellow who, when we were talking about career goals, came to me and basically said, my, my long-term career goal is to own and operate my own business. I want to become a cyber consultant, right? And I said to him, fantastic, let's start working on your growth plan for that. And I began actively working with an employee of mine whom I love dearly and really wanted to keep around on my team. But I began actively working with this guy on his plan to leave my team. I'm investing in my people no matter what they want. And I'll tell you this, there was a huge payoff there because during the time that he was with me, the fact that I was 100% behind him meant he was 100% behind me. And even though we knew his exit strategy was coming and one day he'd be walking away from my team, I got 110% out of him during his duration there. And he felt like he was getting the same for me. And there was an honesty and a transparency to the whole conversation. In my mind, it's perfectly fine to train people up and be on their role and lose them. I think that's part of the game. I think, I think you should lose your good players at some point, right? Because they deserve growth as well. Well, yeah, I mean, they go ahead and they grow up and move on. And then you get a chance to go ahead and continue building and mentoring people in your team move up and you bring new people in. I mean, it's to me, it's a life cycle. And I actually feel privileged to be part of that and to actually be part of somebody's growth and to really see them do well. You know, I don't have a problem with it. And I actually push back when leadership asks me, well, why would we want to train them? They might leave us. And I'm like, well, just think if we don't train them and they stay here, how bad that would be. You know, (laughs) like, come on, people. Right. Right. Let's have a whole team of untrained personnel that we're afraid to invest in because they might leave. Right. That'll do us well in the long term. That's fantastic. So back to Chris Hughes's comment, you know, his question about it, too. I know you're a good mentor and a good leader, and I know you invest in your people. We've talked about this before. I know you well, so I'm always trying to remember not all the listeners do. But that struggle of balancing the technical with the management upstairs and the business skills and carving out the time to take care of your people and lead them and mentor them and encourage and build their leadership capabilities, that's tough. And one thing Evgeny Karam asked is, you know, especially in the modern world of COVID here where we can't do face-to-face meetings with the team anymore, what has changed in that coaching dynamic? Yeah, I mean, a big part of coaching and leading the security program, and not just the security program, honestly, leading any teams or leading any group of people is you've got to build a sense of trust. You've got to work close together to achieve goals. When everything went digital, everything really became harder. I found I needed to do more one-on-ones. I couldn't just do a one-on-one every couple of weeks. You know, I found out I was starting to do one-on-ones every week. I knew I needed to go ahead and not only understand how they 
how they are doing, but I also needed to understand their families because they're all together now. Everybody's at home. Kids are running around, dogs barking in the background, everything. I needed to understand, you know, a lot of what I talk about self-care and that stress is now mounting with that team member who's now at home with family. And so I needed to spend more time doing uh, one-on-ones with them. When I do one-on-ones with them, sometimes, you know, it's just about the relationship. I just chat with them and how they're managing stress. How's it going on at home? We don't even talk about work. Sometimes we talk about things that we are, you know, reading and it may even be a BS chat, but it's just spending time together. And what we've started doing recently, what I thought is really interesting as a team is we'll all actually come together on a Zoom. We'll be sitting together on a Zoom, right? But each of us will be doing individual projects, but we're in a Zoom room together so we can chat and talk with each other. So it's like, it's like we're almost sitting in our cubbies back at work while we're working. I like that. Just an open, active meeting. And it's just an open, active meeting where we're all doing our own things, but we're able to sit there and chat with each other and joke with each other and stuff. And hey, take a look at this. And what I found is everybody calms. There's a sense of calmness and a sense of focus. And again, it's that sense of trust. We're all back together as a community, as a tight-knit team, even though we're doing it digitally. You've got to do those kind of moments to try to bring people together, to try to remember that we have to work together, that we have to talk to each other, that we have to take care of each other, even though it's all digital now. We're not able to see each other face to face. You have to do more of it as a manager and as a leader. Pre-COVID, I was taught doing a one-on-one once a month. Now I'm doing a one-on-one month every week where I'm checking in with them. And it isn't always a business-related one each week. I might do a business-related one every other week. And then the odd weeks, we're talking about stuff. We're talking about articles we've seen. We're talking about books. We're talking about family. I'm just giving them time to de-stress and check with them and make sure they're okay. I like that. And I love the active meeting idea, too. It hadn't occurred to me. That's exactly it. It's If everyone's working in their cubicles, everyone's working away, clickety-click typing, and somebody may sh- shout over the wall, hey, Tom, have you seen this thing about the whatever? It's that same environment where you can do that now. And I'm assuming people probably mute video in that context, and it's kind of audio only. Yeah, you know, we sometimes will shut video off. We'll be talking about something, and we'll end up sharing desktops. Hey, I'm looking at this. What do you guys think of this? And then you can hear a couple of other people it's almost like you can hear this switch and everybody's kind of jumping in to look and then they go back to what they're doing. But it's, it is, I mean, I, I have found that we do that a couple of times a week and people like it. That's great. I'm going to, I'm going to start taking that strategy on with my shop for sure. So Chris Fulon, another one of my favorite human beings, he asks you, he asked you, how do you empower your team to help take on pieces of your strategy, which is a very specific question to me, right? This, yep. he's not just saying empower your team. You as the CISO have that high-level business strategy to Chris Hughes's earlier point that you've got you've got a business focus and a high-level mission. How are you doling that out, divvying that up when you're empowering your team and presenting them with leadership opportunity? How are you divvying up the strategy across that sort of that distributed leadership grid that you're creating? Well, the thing about it is, is that my team members are with me from the beginning. So when I'm doing the initial assessment and I'm looking at how deep the rabbit hole is and I'm looking at the list of gaps and things that we need to work on, they're there with me. And I'm explaining what I'm looking at. I'm explaining what I'm concerned about. When I ask peers from the other business units to come in and help me prioritize the list of issues so I can start building out my, typically I build out a 36-month strategic plan, the team members are right there. And so they're seeing it all and they're seeing us go ahead and rack and stack and prioritize the issues that we have. They're seeing me break it up into 12 month increments 
and it's going to be different initiatives, technologies, policy. And, and typically what I do, once we get that done and we have that kind of a strategic plan of what we're going to be working on for the next 12 months, and that actually gets phased into our budget, that gets phased into what I'm presenting to the board. So the board really knows and has visibility from a security standpoint, what we're working on and why. I then go ahead and have each team member, I basically tell them, you're going to be an SME on at least a couple of pieces of technology in the stack. And every one of them, including myself, each one of us will go ahead and grab a couple of pieces. So we are an SME of a couple of things in the stack and we're backups for other things in the stack. And when you're an SME for those things, you own them. You know, so you write the run books on them. I have my vendors don't talk to me. I have my vendors talk to the SME and CC me. I want them to start taking leadership and talking to the vendors for the things that they own. When we go ahead and we do our weekly meetings, they will brief anything on their technologies that they're responsible for. And then, of course, there's upgrades. If there's initiatives where we're, we're pulling out a technology and putting in a new one, we do it together as a team. But I start giving them ownership of pieces of the stack. And then what I start doing from that is I start talking about integration. I start talking about how these pieces work together. I start talking about, and I start walking them through when we do incident response, how you use multiple pieces of the stack to be able to follow data flows and to be able to troubleshoot. But it's very important to give them ownership of something and also have them back each other up. And then what I do is, and then we tie it into things like support and JIRA tickets. A ticket comes in, something's down, so-and-so is the SME, he or she's the first person that'll go ahead and will hit that ticket to troubleshoot. And then as they take a look at it, if they need help, then we jump in. But it's like you, you give them the first step. You give them the first piece of ownership. So they own part of the strategy, part of the stack. And over time, in my one-on-ones and also in my team meetings, I give them the bigger picture the politics, the interplay of the other departments, how these technologies and our stack tie into the IT department stack, and which is the reason why we have to work together and why we rely on each other. And, and that's basically what I do. I mean, from the beginning, they're with me with the assessment piece. We get that built out. They see what the plan is going to be. And then I start doling out ownership. And then what I also start doing is every one of my vendors I make sure I have training for each one of those technologies. And these, my SMEs, they go to these trainings. They get trainings on these technologies. That's great. And it sounds like to me, we've got very similar approaches there. And I want to hone in on a little bit about what you said specifically, which is you mentioned that they do the, the briefings as well. And this to me is a huge part of it. It's not just ownership of the stack, but ownership of even business process. And I love what you're doing as well with bringing the big picture business process to the team meetings. I do the same there as well. But the briefing piece specifically, I have coached my teams historically to learn to not just own the thing, but to be the one who could present on my behalf upstairs and out to the business on the thing. And I encourage them to work on their presentation skills, on their delivery skills, to own not just the tech stack, but the business implications and to be aware of where they fit the bigger picture. So one of the things I also try to do to complement your strategy is I'll always make sure that the high-level business objectives have been flowed down to me and my team and then flowed down to their specific tasks. So in other words, if somebody's running a CASB solution, for example, if you want to just talk about a random tech stack element, They know where that fits into the team's mission, and they know where the team's mission fits into the business mission, and they're prepared to brief from that perspective, not just from the technical 
here I am doing my CASB thing and I configured this and configured that and blocked this and blocked that. Like I want them fully doing that. And this has backfired on me one time and one time only. I had a guy on my team who was an extraordinary introvert and really, really, really never had any aspirations of being a true leadership position either in terms of management position, I should say. There's plenty of true leadership positions that aren't management. He had no aspirations for management, was a high, high, high introvert. And he and I ended up having to work together for, oh my goodness, probably five times as much as I did with anybody else to get him comfortable enough just to do it in front of the team. And I never threw him forward to the business like I, like I did everyone else just because of his high anxiety levels in that space. That's the only time that strategy has backfired. But otherwise, I, I truly believe encouraging those soft skills, encouraging the communication and encouraging the business awareness. I'm aligned with you very heavily on that one. Oh, yeah. And in fact, I've got, um, I've got some team members who are very, very good at, you know, from a soft skill perspective, from communications, being able to write specific reports like, you know, an incident report or being able to brief out a project or something that we've done. And I'm willing to let them go ahead and brief the business, but I also want them to train team members and walk team members through how they prepare, how they go ahead and do it and what they focus on. You and I both know to get into the leadership level, soft skills, you've got to have them. And it's one of those things that I start early with my team members, getting them to learn this because, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the whole package. Absolutely it is. And I'm, I'm in full agreement there. And yes, we've had this conversation. I always have to keep in mind our listeners aren't privy to the conversations you and I have had in the past, right? But absolutely soft skills. You and I are both very pro on that. I know some CISOs emphasize the tech stack more than the soft skills, but I'm definitely soft skills over tech stack is my emphasis for sure. The higher you climb the ladder, the more it's required in my mind. Oh yeah, definitely. All right. So we had an anonymous question as well. It says, how do you promote engagement and work-life integration of your security team during today's work constraints, i.e. COVID once again? So how are you encouraging the work-life balance for your people in the face of COVID? The big thing for me, like I said, you know, COVID pretty much flipped the table on everything. And I, I've actually been writing about this. I've been, you know, I've been talking about the whole thing about self-care because cybersecurity itself, we as a community already had a burnout problem. And then you go in, you throw COVID in, you can be working 12, 14, 16 hour days just because, because you're home, the computer's there and you just work. And it doesn't mean that's right. Like I said, I mean, I spent a lot of time in my one-on-ones and in my team meetings where I'm talking with people. I'm looking at, I'm constantly watching the hours that they're doing. Are they taking breaks? I'm making sure that they go on vacation. And when they go on vacation, I don't want them answering the phone or answering emails. The rest of us can handle it. And then I ask them when I spend time with them, I do ask questions about their family and I freely give them time to go handle family issues and events because now with kids being home and a lot of this hybrid learning thing where they're home sometime and they're school sometime, it's really kind of thrown families for a loop trying to go ahead and handle all of this and doing remote work you know, especially my teams, we don't do nine to five or eight to four or whatever. We just do. <laughs> you know, we got projects, we got initiatives, we got tickets that we're working on. We're partnering with other. I mean, typically we come in, we're on around six, six thirty in the morning, you know, till six in the evening on general, just because of we're on the talk with the UK office early in the morning. And by the end of the evening, we're talking with the Tokyo office before we sign out. What I've started doing is, is I'm working those kind of late hours, but that's my responsibility. I manage the rest of my staff and I trade it off and I get them to go ahead and know I got this, go ahead and go. 
it is a continuous process. You have to continually watch it. Like I said, we were already having burnout issues in cybersecurity as it is. And COVID, I honestly think, has made it a lot worse. And it's one of those things now as a leadership team, you have to monitor and watch your personnel. I mean, my company itself, the HR team, is sending out surveys weekly. They're doing a lot of different things to keep the departments active and monitor the stress and monitor people that are out. And even all the way down to the team level, you know, I honestly think you have to do the same. That's great. You take that burden on from them. I myself, as you know, am frequently up and working as early as 3 a.m. and slinging out emails and getting on things and doing things. And I try my best. It's a horrible example. This is one of those moments where I'm not leading by example. I'm telling my folks, dang it, at six o'clock, you've been working since seven, like you're done. Go unplug and go have family time, and then I'll proceed to work for another five hours. It's fair to your point to shoulder the burden from your team, but by the same token, I worry sometimes about the example we're setting when we do that, that they're going to feel some amount of pressure to keep working like we're working. Like, I'm trying to work-life balance myself right now so that I'm not influencing others around me to feel pressured to have the same unhealthy balance I have. Well, and the thing about this is we're taking care of our people, but at the same time, we're under stress. And I think that's with the Tinker Tribe and with our other different peer groups that we have. We've got to self-manage ourselves as well. You've got to find things to be able to manage your stress as well. If you're not doing your team any good, if you're burned out, you're sick, or you can't do your job. It's definitely a vicious life cycle right now that we're having to manage. It is. And Leah Ostrowski says, and this kind of ties into what we were just saying, as you're developing this work-life balance, that's part of the culture that you're building, right? And Leah Ostrowski says, are you intentional about culture development? And I think I know your answer to that one. And if so, what elements about culture are non-negotiable? And what do you do to develop that culture? I'm very strategic when I'm building uh, my teams. And there are soft skills. There are certain things that I'm looking for. You know, I'm basically looking to develop a healthy team culture. I don't abide people lying. I don't abide people not taking responsibility. Finally, I really push to find people that can work comfortable in teams, that can work comfortable in groups. I don't need prima donnas. I can have someone that, hey, look at me. I'm the best blah, blah, blah out there. That's fine. But you're not doing the other five people on the team any good. The team's more about just you and what your skill sets are. I'm very focused on, I like to say, you know, I'm building a community. I'm building a community of people that can trust each other, that can work together, that don't lie to each other. And that can be relied upon that if they make mistakes, they own it, they learn from it, and we move forward. Because this is cyber. You're going to break things. You're going to screw stuff up. I can't count the number of times I've screwed things up, you know, when I, you know, coming up. But you learn from these mistakes. You take ownership of them. And that's what I look for is I look for, are you a person of your word? If you state that you're going to go ahead and do something, you're going to go ahead and do it. And if, like, for some reason, you can't get a deliverable on time, you don't hide it. You come out to the team. You come out to us and you tell us, I'm having these mistakes. No, not mistakes. I'm having these issues. You know, I'm having these blockers. I'm only up to this level. I need help. That's what we as a team are there for, is to go ahead and help each other so that we get things done and we can go ahead and move on to the next issue. For me, building that culture is very strategic for me. There's things that I look for. You know, when I'm interviewing people, I can see the tech skills that I want, but if you're lacking in certain soft skills, especially core ones, like about being about lying and being a man or a woman of your word, things that I'm, I'm, do I have the ability to be able to trust you? 
Do I think that I can go ahead and bring you in to the current culture and the current team that I have? And are you going to be a disruptive factor or are you going to go ahead and lift them up and help them move forward? I've watched for those and I'm more than, and I am more than willing to go ahead and shoot down a candidate that I think is going to be a negative influence, even though they, they may have all the tech skills in the world. That's very similar to my process. I have interview questions highly targeted at what was your last major screw up and how did you deal with that screw up? What do you do when you know your boss is wrong? What do you do when you know your boss is broadcasting a message upstairs that you don't believe is accurate or honest? You told your boss it's going to take 10 days to solve a thing, and he's running around telling the rest of the business it's going to be done in five days. I challenge them with these kinds of challenges, and it's not just about honesty and integrity and ownership. It's also about holding those around you accountable, even if it's the boss. And I'll tell you, one of the things about me that's it sounds completely stupid, but this is totally true. When I'm a new CISO at a new team, to your point, you're going to screw up at some point, something, somewhere, somehow. Especially in a leadership position, screw-ups have big implications, generally speaking. And I actually look forward to my first screw-up because it's going to happen. It's inevitable. And once it happens, how I manage that screw-up in front of the entire team and the community around me and those upstairs is going to set a strong example for everybody in my team on how you do it. Total ownership, total transparency. Here's what I thought I was doing. Here's what I did wrong. Here's the assumptions I made. Here's where I miscalculated. Here's how it went south. Here were the repercussions. I'm sorry. I'm already doing this and that and the other to address it. That total ownership piece has to be there for me. Oh, yeah, definitely. So we are getting close to the end of the show here. I've got one question I ask everybody at the end, which is, what keeps you going in cybersecurity? Why are you still in the game? I think the big thing is I love the community and the people. I remember when I first attended my first Black Hat, and there was a bunch of security professionals and hackers and people that were all sitting together and, and they were having drinks and talking with each other. It was really close knit and, and I'm all by myself. And I think this was back in like 2006. Yes, I've been attending for quite a while, but it was like, I remember seeing that and thinking to myself, I want to be part of that. I want to be with them. I want to go ahead and be with that kind of a community, that type of closeness, that type of friends, people that you know, you're able to go ahead and talk and argue with who will call you on something and hold you to a better example, you know, because, you know, because they're a mentor or they're a peer or they're just a close friend like, like you and I. And that's what I see in, in cybersecurity. And I see the community itself growing. I see more diversity, more women and more people of color coming in, which I think is one of the best things for us. And I'm excited. I'm excited to where this community is going. And I even told my wife, I said, eventually when I retire, I probably will still stay active in the community. I'll probably still teach. I'll still mentor. I'll still work with startups. I'll probably still go to conferences. I just love the community itself. And I'm always fascinated with technology and what people are doing. So I don't see myself leaving anytime soon at all. That's great. And I'm so grateful that you're part of my community, quite frankly. Community is such a strong piece for me as well. And amen on the diversity arguments. It needs to happen. We need more diversity in this tribe. We need more people, period, in this tribe. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. diverse perspectives strengthen us even more than just more of the same folks coming on, right? So this is, and this ties into the conversations we've had about even people with military background, not military background, technical background, soft skills background, people of color, women. I want all the different perspectives I can find coming into this community, enriching it. So that's a great answer, Gary. Thank you so much. This is Gary Hayslip. We've been speaking with folks. Brilliant CISO. Four times over author now, I believe it is. Very prolific on LinkedIn. 
Thank you, Gary Hayslip, for coming out. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. Mm-hmm.